If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 3. So we are working our way through this book. We're going to read the whole chapter of Esther chapter 3 today as we go through this. So you've noticed already that the book of Esther has been a lot different than the book of Romans as we've gone through it. And sometimes we parked on just one verse in Romans and now we're reading whole chapters. And you may notice we do a lot of Bible reading in our service. That's uh, that's intentional. That's that's. That's why we are here. That is our authority as a church. We believe that the Lord is working supernaturally through his word. That even the, the, the simple reading of the word, even, even without explanation, is, is um, supernaturally powerful in our lives. I'd invite you again on Wednesday nights. We, we meet out here for a time of prayer, but we spend the first half of our hour together just reading through scripture. No teaching, no commentary, just the word of God. And um, I can tell you the last couple weeks for me have been particularly bad weeks, uh, weeks where I've had a lot of uh, anxiety and depression for whatever reason. Wednesday night, I'm not in the mood for it. I would like to go home, seal myself off in a room somewhere, and I leave on those nights after having spent time with the public reading of God's word and in prayer with the church so refreshed and encouraged. There is, there is power here in God's word. And so if you feel like this is a church that we do too much Bible reading as we have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading, and then we read and preach the text verse by verse, then I would just say, uh, this is who we're going to be at least until the day I die. Uh, and so you should just get on board with that. It's good. It's God's word. Let's stand together in honor of God's word. Esther chapter 3, picking up where we left off last week. Hear the word of the Lord now. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. When the king's servants were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. When Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials and to all the people in every province of its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to, the, to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. We pray, Lord, by your spirit working through your word that you would accomplish your good purposes in us, your people. Pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, undoubtedly, the most famous blood feud in American history is that of the Hatfields and the McCoys. That's become something of a punchline uh, in, in our day, the Hatfields and the McCoys. In fact, you can go to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and go to the Hatfields and McCoys dinner feud, dinner show, where they'll entertain you with acrobatics and comedy and hillbilly hijinks while you eat a buffet dinner. It's the hardest ticket in town in Pigeon Forge to get, apparently. But it was deadly serious. It, it was... It was tragically destructive, this feud between these two families. They were two wealthy families. They lived on either side of the river that, that formed the border between Kentucky and West Virginia. The McCoys lived on the Kentucky side. The Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side. During the Civil War, the pro-Confederate Hatfields resented the McCoys for their loyalty and support of the Union. It was even rumored that they killed one of them for his uh, service to the Union armies. Things really took off, though, in 1878. Mr. McCoy accused Mr. Hatfield's family of crossing over that river and stealing one of his hogs, which was a big deal back in those days. And so he ended up taking him to court, but he didn't have any evidence that, that it was this other family who had done it. After that, that court case, which amounted to nothing, the members of the McCoy family were so enraged that one of them shot and killed one of the jurors after the trial. And the animosity just kept growing between the two families until finally one of the McCoys killed one of the Hatfields. From there, things spiraled out of control into an all-out war. Both sides regularly perpetrating killings and beatings and kidnappings against the others. It reached its peak in 1888, what's called the New Year's Night Massacre, when the Hatfields surrounded the McCoy cabin and opened fire on it. They killed two children. They, they dragged the mother out and beat her to the point of death and just left her there. 
Finally, the governors of both Kentucky and West Virginia had to get involved because this feud was national news all across the country, and they sent the militia in to get things under control. All in all, over a dozen people died in that feud. Some have the numbers much higher than that. Numerous family members were imprisoned, some for life. Both families totally consumed by this blood feud that lasted 11 years. They have put their, their differences aside. You can find it on YouTube. They appeared together on the show Family Feud. They had little fake pistols that they shot at one another throughout the game show, which is very strange. Starting in the year 2000, they started having an annual joint family reunion A weekend of festivities that take place some on the Kentucky side of the river and some on the West Virginia side. They call it the Hatfield and McCoy Reunion Festival. So they seem to have buried the hatchet there. And in our text today, we see something far worse than the Hatfields and the McCoys. A blood feud that spans more than decades. It spans generations. Much more blood has already been spilled in this feud as we come to this passage and much more blood will yet be shed in this feud. And we are introduced to a new character now in the the, the story of Esther. Haman the Agagite or the Agagite if we want to draw particular attention to who this guy is. He's the main villain of this story. In fact, the Jews, when, when the story of Esther was read, and Esther, again, it's, it's really telling the story of where the festival of Purim comes from. And when, when this story is read, I told you on the first week we looked at this, generally they prefer that everybody be drunk when they read the story to them. It is a raucous, riotous event. But anytime Haman's name is read in the story, you can't hear it. Because all in attendance are shaking noisemakers, booing and hissing and screaming uh, over the top to cover up Haman's name from even being heard. He is an enemy of God. He is an enemy of God's people. And we meet him. He comes onto the stage in this story now. Verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Hagen the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. After these things, after what things? Well, it's what we saw last week. Last week we saw Mordecai uncover and then foil a plot to assassinate the king. Two of his eunuchs plotting together to assassinate the king. Mordecai finds out about it. He tells Esther about it. Esther goes to the king and tells the king in Mordecai's name. They investigate the matter. They find that, yes, these two would be assassins. We're going to kill the king, and so they execute them. They impale them. And the king had these events recorded in his book of Chronicles, the chronicles of his reign and his empire, but Mordecai was never rewarded, which is extremely rare in the Persian Empire. They were sticklers for rewarding those who did service to the king. So we just read of this event last week, and we expect the very next words in the story to be, and after these things... Mordecai was promoted. But instead, we meet this new character. We meet Haman. Haman is promoted to be the prime minister, the second in command of this massive, sprawling, powerful Persian empire. But he's not just a guy named Haman who gets promoted. He is Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. It's it's no coincidence. We saw earlier in the story, Mordecai's family lineage was given to us. 
We talked about, about who Mordecai was and where he came from and who was in his family line. And now it's no coincidence that we get this information for Haman's family line as well. When, when we hear Haman introduced to us with these words, our ears are supposed to perk up. Certainly the ears of the original hearers of this story had their, their ears perked up. There is bad blood between these two families, Mordecai's family and Haman's family. It goes way back. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. When the Amalekites became the first people to really prey on and attack God's covenant people. We read this in Exodus chapter 17. Starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, Hur went up to the top of the mountain. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will surely blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord, my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So so this curse is pronounced on these people, on this family line by God himself. And though the Amalekites were defeated in battle on that day, as we read in Exodus 17, they really spend the next 900 years being at war with the Jews. Fast forward then to the book of 1 Samuel and we see King Saul. King Saul being Mordecai's ancestor as revealed to us earlier in the text of Esther when we first meet Mordecai. And King Saul is, is ordered by God, commanded by God to bring the judgment of God against the Amalekites and against their king, King Agag, Haman's ancestor. To destroy them once and for all. To to bring this curse we read of in Exodus 17 to fullness. To blot the memory of Amalek from under the sun. God commands Saul to, to devote every man, every woman, every child, every animal to destruction. He is to spare none of them. This is God's judgment on them. God's judgment is just. They were an exceedingly wicked people and God had been incredibly patient with them. And so his judgment, judgment time had come for the fulfillment of this curse from all the way back in Exodus 17. Saul blot their name from the earth, wiped them out entirely. And we know the story. Saul didn't do it. Saul defies God instead of obeying God. He keeps some of the best animals alive. And he keeps Agag alive, the king of the Amalekites. And the prophet Samuel confronts Saul about this. Did you do what God commanded you to do? And Saul says, yes. 
We have that great line, don't we? Then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? To which Saul says, listen, I kept some of the best animals because I wanted to have a fantastic sacrifice to God. I disobeyed God so I could worship him. Surely that excuse will work. I mean, that excuse is still being thrown around a lot today in church circles. I'm disobeying God, yes, but it's so that I can worship him and it feels very right to me. What's God's perspective on this? No, to obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel tells Saul his kingdom's going to be torn away from him, given to someone else more worthy than himself. God cares about our obedience. God cares not just that we worship him, God cares how we worship him. So then Samuel calls for Agag, this this king of the Amalekites, to be brought to him. And we read in, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 32, Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Even though with Agag dead, as we come to the story of Esther, here's what we find out. His family line's not dead. He has descendants, and they have not forgotten, apparently, all of this bad blood, all of this bloodshed and animosity. They continue to spread his hatred of God and of God's people. Just skip ahead just a little bit to verse 10 and and see how it describes Haman. Haman. The Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, enemy of the Jews. So, so we meet Haman here in this story. Again, we think Mordecai is going to get promoted. But we hear about this guy, Haman. He's promoted. We see Haman. We see his family line. And we see him made prime minister, second in command over all the Persian Empire. And we know this. Trouble's coming. If this is the guy then trouble's coming for God's people. There's more, though, going on here than our eyes can see. This isn't just about some kind of ancient history. It's not just some blood feud or war that's been going on. It's not just about the killing and the hatred between families. Now, Haman is the enemy of the Jews, yes. Just as his ancestor Agag was, the enemy of the Jews, But the true enemy behind all of this, and Esther invites us to do this throughout the whole story, and we've been trying to do that so far, is we look at the details of the story, but then we want to pull back and see what's really going on, what's really driving these events. And the true enemy is Satan. The true enemy is Satan himself. Haman and Agag were just agents of, they were the human agents of the real Enemy, This enemy who's been trying for centuries to destroy God's covenant people in order to ensure that God's promises would not come to pass and be fulfilled. There's something far bigger than this long-standing feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites, between the, the line of Mordecai and the line of Haman. This is a battle. This is a war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. So verse 2 says, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So the the king has issued another command. And in the, the book of Esther, 
So far, the king has issued a lot of commands, and they're all dumb. Every one of them is a bad, dumb command. Well, he's got another one. When Haman enters into your presence, you bow down to him. You pay homage to him. This is the first one that makes any sense. It's not necessarily an immoral command. This is is what the culture was. If you're better, if someone who, who outranks you walks in, you bow to them if you're in their presence. There's no reason to think that this has any... Some commentators try to go, hey, Mordecai won't bow down because to bow down to Haman would be to worship Haman. There's no reason to think that that's what's going on. You bowed as a sign of respect. If our president stumbled his way into this room, we would stand up. Or we ought to. Not because we think he's a great guy, but because of the office that he holds. And we're Americans. That's exactly what's going on with Haman. You bow down. You bow down before him as a sign of respect. It's considered rude if you don't bow down. And and scholars and commentators have tried to come up with all kinds of reasons because as Esther is wont to do, it doesn't tell us why Mordecai didn't bow down. just says he wouldn't bow down. So some have suggested, and this may be at play in some regard, just as we expected the words of chapter 3 to start with, so Mordecai was promoted, Mordecai also expected the next event to be that Mordecai was promoted. He had just saved the king's life. Perhaps he was just angry that he wasn't promoted. And when Haman is promoted, Mordecai says, that should have been me. And so he won't bow. Perhaps he just wants nothing to do with Persian politics, some commentators suggest. Which doesn't really work because he works for the king. Some say he just didn't like Haman and he liked irritating him. That's quite a gamble he's taking. And Mordecai's not out preaching in the streets. He's not out, he's not out you know, actively campaigning against Haman. He's just simply not doing something. He's not bowing. It's, it's just an act of civil disobedience. But the, the issue is, it's just a, an act of rudeness, a kind of social transgression. But the problem is the king had commanded it. The king commanded, you have to bow down when Haman comes your way. So so now it's not just rude, it's insubordination. Mordecai's risking a lot. He he has gotten himself a position in the kingdom, working at the king's gate. He has curried the good favor of the king and his supporters by saving the king's life. And now he's risking all of it. Verse 3, the king's servants who were at the gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. And they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai actually gives gives the reason here. Mordecai tells them why he won't bow. At first he doesn't respond. Then he says this. I'm not bowing because I'm a Jew. Let's just think back on what we know about Mordecai so far in this story. Isn't this the same Mordecai who refused to go back to Jerusalem and is living in the pagan capital city? Isn't this the same guy who sent his adoptive daughter into a pagan's harem, letting her spend her one night with the king, hoping that she would win this contest and become the wife of an uncircumcised Pagan, Isn't this the same Mordecai who told Esther to hide her Jewishness, causing her not to be able to keep the commands of, the God, of God, not to be able to keep the dietary commands, 
not to be able to keep the Sabbath. Isn't this more the same God? And the answer is, it is. It is. And this is where we're starting to see, as some time has gone on, something has started to change in Mordecai, I believe. There, there's, there's nothing so far in this story about Mordecai and Esther that is commendable. Nothing so far in the story has led us to view them in a positive light until this moment. Until this act of civil disobedience. And again, as we've mentioned before in our study of this book, the author of Esther doesn't give commentary. He doesn't tell us why people do the things that they do. And he doesn't comment on the morality of it. But it seems clear in the writing here and this inclusion of Mordecai's answer to his co-workers of why he is transgressing the king's command and including for us that it's because he's a Jew. Seems clear what the author wants us to see is that Mordecai is taking a stand. Mordecai the Jew is taking a stand against Haman the Agagite. Haman, who's identified as the enemy of the Jews. Verse 5 says, when Haman saw Mordecai didn't bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Here here are the echoes of King Ahasuerus. What does King Ahasuerus do? Anytime somebody transgresses him, filled with fury instantly. Here's Haman. But he dismayed to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sat to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So one man refuses to bow down to, to Haman. And like any good, reasonable, measured person, Haman's response is, I will kill every person he is related to, no matter how distantly and no matter how far they are from this city we live in. I'm going to kill the whole Jewish race. A race of people is going to die. It's it's beneath Haman to just punish Mordecai, this one man. Haman is a big deal. He is very important, and and it's going to take more than one guy to pay for this rude disrespect he's received. What he's really doing is he's using this disrespect to settle an old family score. We're going to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. To kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire is to kill all the Jews. This is the empire. If they wipe out all the Jews, men, women, and children, out of this Persian empire, there are no Jews left. And so we we see again who it is that's behind this. Satan himself, the enemy of God and his people. Haman then consults the council of his gods to determine how exactly to move forward with this plan. We're going to kill all the Jews. Verse 7, the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king of Hajuaris, they cast Pur. That's where we get the name Purim. That is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day. Cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So the lot is cast to determine the best date for murdering all the Jews. He consults the priests of his false god and they cast pur. It's the Akkadian word for stone in order to determine the will of the gods. Essentially what they're doing is rolling the dice. So some, some of these even looked like dice. They, they would write the names of all the days. Then they did the same thing with the months. And they would put them in 
And they were written on like pieces of baked clay. Some of them did look like stones. And then they would put them in a, in a jug of sorts, shake the jug, the jug until one pops out. And then you, you repeated that process again and again until you got the exact same response three times in a row. That's a true lot. And you have your answer. And so they did that process with the days. And then they did that process with the months. You can imagine sometimes this took a while. It took a while to be able to get three exact same responses with the months and then three exact same responses with the days. Verse 13, if we look ahead, tells us the final result. The the dice landed on the 13th day of Adar. That is significant for a couple reasons. First of all, it's because it's 11 months away. And so he consults his God. When should we carry out this murder of all the Jews? And the answer is about a year from now. That's going to become very significant, of massive importance as this story goes on. Another beautiful piece of irony is that the 13th day of any month was considered by the Persians unlike, unlucky. So, so this, this idea with the number 13 has been around for a long time. And so the 13th day of a month was an unlucky day. There's almost this foreshadowing going on just in the day that, that the dice select. This is not going to go well for you, Haman. This is not good. Third, though, this date is very significant to the Jews. It is the day before they begin to celebrate Passover, remembering how it is that God delivered them from slavery in Egypt 900 years ago. And so as they are, this date that's landed is one day before Passover begins, when their minds are set on what it means to be the people of God, who God has borne up on eagles' wings and brought out of their desperate situation to himself, to be his people. And in all of this, we see that God is providentially orchestrating everything. It's Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God determines everything. Even the roll of the dice is what that proverb is telling us. He's working out his plans perfectly to the tiniest details. So the Jews in our story yet do not know what's coming for them, but God knows. And God already has, has, has a plan to save them because what is happening is just the accomplishing of God's plans. There's great hope for us in that as we see the details of this story and God's sovereign, meticulous rule over every detail. Notice now how devious Haman is as he approaches the king. Verse 8, Haman said to Ahasuerus, There are certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those, uh, uh, from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's law, so that it's not the, to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Haman approaches the king and says, King, there's, there are these people. They, they are planted. They are scattered throughout your whole Empire. It is just this. Don't worry about who they are. It's a nameless, faceless group of people. They are just spread out. But you need to know they're different. They're different from us. They're not like us. Oh, and they don't. They don't obey your laws, King. And so I'm not saying this for my sake. I'm saying this for your sake. This is for. I'm very loyal to you, King, and so I'm telling you, it's of no profit to you to tolerate them. And so, verse nine says, "If it please the King, let it be decreed that 
they be destroyed. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge over the king's business that they may put into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. So Haman tells the king this. It's just this group of people out there. They're, so, they're different from us. They almost don't matter. They have different laws. Now the king's listening. They don't obey my laws. And then Haman just outright bribes him just to make sure it goes over the top. I'll pay you 10,000 talents of silver. That, that's nearly 40 tons of silver that Haman is promising to, to give to the king. It's over half of the annual tax revenue for the entire Persian Empire for a year. It is a massive sum of money. And King Ahasuerus, who we know better by his Greek name, King Xerxes, was an exceptionally greedy man. That's why he wanted to destroy the Greeks as their empire was rising. Also, we see of a king Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, he is completely incapable of telling anyone no. He is an absolute weakling. Anyone who asks him for anything, his answer is going to be yes. And so he agrees to Haman's plan immediately. He doesn't even bother to ask who the people are. Oh, we're going to kill an entire race of people. Who are they? No. He just orders them to be put to death with no more information. His response is a little odd because he says to Haman in verse 11, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. In other words, he might be saying to Haman, it's your money, do what you want. He might be saying to Haman, that money you were going to pay, use that money as much as you need to carry out this plan. He's probably, though, saying to Haman, I don't want your money. Do with the people what you want. I don't need the money. This this is right. Just do it. The people are in your hands now. Which is just some Middle East posturing because he does want the money. This is just a form. It's, it's, It's like when you go to dinner and you're with somebody and you try to reach for the check, but you're really hoping, I hope their hand's quick. I would like them to pay. That's what, that's what, none of you do that. You're very... Very godly people. But, but this is just posturing. I don't want the money. He does want the money. And he's going to take the money. In chapter 4, Mordecai says, the money's going into the king's treasury. In chapter 7, Esther says, my people were sold. Of course he wants the money. And of course he's going to take the money if he can get it. The striking thing in all of this, though, is not the money. It's how quickly the king approved the plan. No investigation No questions. Herodotus, the the ancient Greek historian, where we get most of Persia's history from, we know a lot about this king. He says Persian policy actually forbids a person to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. We saw that last week, didn't we? As Mordecai uncovers the plot of these two eunuchs who are plotting to assassinate the king, the matter was investigated first. And then they were executed once they were proven to be guilty. There's actually something called the harem inscription that they have found in Persepolis where this same king Xerxes proclaims that he will never render a judgment in any case without hearing the testimony of both parties. But here, 
That Xerxes, who says that about himself, condemns an entire race of people on the testimony of one witness. No questions asked. Without even knowing who they are, yeah, kill them all. One commentator says, such is Xerxes' typical modus operandi in this book. Act rashly, deal with the consequences later. That, that is this king in the story of Esther. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in the king's, to the king's satraps and governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, every province in its own script. Every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with his signet ring. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder all their goods. Where was Haman going to get that much money? Right there. We're going to plunder the Jews. And I'll use that money to pay for their execution. Verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples ready for that day. Couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the king now, on the testimony of this one man... Issues an edict. He leaves no room for confusion whatsoever. All destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, and plunder all of their goods. The couriers then went out hurriedly. There's not a a lot of deliberation going on here. We issue the edict, travel fast. Spread the word far and wide across the entire empire. This is the day. Neighbor will rise up against neighbor and you will slaughter them and you will slaughter their children and you will slaughter their women and you will plunder all of their goods. Haman's murderous deception has worked. He has gone to the king with his plan and it has worked. The king bought it. The king sent the edict out. Word is now spreading through the empire as we speak. The date has been set. The Jews are condemned. The Jews now are public enemy number one throughout the empire. You can imagine as, as words spread and you start to think about your Jewish neighbor. How your thinking on them has now changed. What is wrong with you? Who are these people? God's people are going to be avoided. They're going to be feared. They're going to be hated. And then they're going to be killed. The the whole city and soon the whole empire has been thrown into confusion, it says. Thrown into upheaval. But the king and Haman are unbothered. They have just signed the death warrant of an entire race of people. And it says they sat down to drink. That's the same word as chapter 1 for the feast that Haman threw. This sprawling, drunken party. Haman and Mordecai are pretty... Or Haman and, and King Ahasuerus are pretty happy with themselves. They're pretty content in what they have just done. And they just sit down to celebrate together. But the Jews are marked for death. The Jews, even now as word spread, are having their lives 
ripped from them. There's a date set for their physical death, but you can imagine what this did to their ability to to do business. You can imagine what this did to their ability to just live amongst their pagan neighbors throughout the empire. Similar to what happened to the Jews during World War II. The night of November 9th and 10th, 1938, the spontaneous eruption of violence occurred against the Jews throughout Germany and Austria. The riots became known as Kristallnacht, meaning crystal night. It's a, it's a reference to all the broken glass left in the streets after the destruction of Jewish homes and properties and stores and shops. Tensions had been mounting. The Jewish people had been verbally denigrated for months. Word had been circulating that the Jews were different from us. They're different from us. They seem to live by different rules than we live by. They're a threat to German prosperity. They're standing in the way of our progress. You can hear, can't you, the, the echoes. Heinrich Himmler, leading member of the Nazi party, echoed the words of Adolf Hitler when he said of the Jews, they do not belong to the same species. They only imitate humans. They are as far removed from us as animals are from humans. This nameless, faceless group of people who are different from us who are standing in our way, who are only a problem. They're not like us, they're Jews. It's just a fetus. It's not, it's not the same as a person. It's not the same as a, as a child. It's certainly not the same as an adult. It's a fetus. And yes, it's tragic. And, and abortion should be rare and safe. But it's not the same as killing a person. It's not the same as committing a murder. Do you, do you hear the rhetoric of the pro-abortion crowds in the rhetoric of Haman, in the rhetoric of the Nazis? They sound like Haman. They sound like the Nazis, and that's because they're under the same demonic influence that Haman was under, that the Nazis were under. They are agents of Satan seeking death and destruction. As Hitler's troops marched against the Jews, they sang songs like this, sharpen the long knives on the pavement stone, sink the knives into the Jewish flesh and bone, let the blood flow freely. Just like the the dancing and the singing and the revelry that takes place at pro-abortion rallies and in front of abortion facilities. Where does this kind of unthinkable wickedness come from? That this unthinkable hatred and violence, where does it originate from? Well, it does not originate from the heart of the king of Persia. Not at its origin. These, these actions people are taking are certainly coming from their wicked hearts. That's not where it starts. It doesn't even originate in the heart of Haman. It didn't originate in the heart of Hitler. It doesn't originate in the heart of the employees of Planned Parenthood or other facilities like it. Or even in the the evil politicians and lobbyists who support them. It originates in the heart of the prince of darkness. 
And men and women, because their foolish hearts are darkened, follow his lead. It has always been this way. God works in mysterious ways, but Satan does not. His message is always the same. His actions are always predictable. He hates God. He hates the image of God. He hates the people of God. He loves death. He hates the thought of God keeping his covenantal promises. He hates the very idea of redemption. He despises the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And so he fights every single minute of every single day. And he has his agents, his human agents, those who hate God. Those who hate his people, those who love death and rage against their creator. And where is God in all of this? Where was God when Haman's plans were all falling into place? When all of his deception and his lies and his wickedness was all playing out just perfectly and the king was agreeing with it and the edict was going out to destroy all the people? Where was God? The answer is he was on his throne in complete and unwavering control. The Hamans of this world, the Hitlers of this world, the Margaret Sangers of this world have all come and gone. They have all had their time. They have raged against God. They had their plots and they had their schemes and they had their devices and they thought they were winning. They thought they were defying God himself. And on their deathbeds, they heard the whisper of divine providence saying to them, checkmate, the game is over. It's over. God owns all the chess pieces. They were moving their pieces around that board, but God owns the chess pieces. God owns the chess board for that matter. God owns the table that the chessboard is sitting on, and he owns the house that that table is inside. He owns every nation. He owns all the universe. Mankind moves the pieces of their will, but in the end they find out that that their movements have only accomplished the eternal purposes and will of God. He is moving all the pieces. That's what we see in this story of Haman. As, this, as we come to the close of chapter 3 and this wicked plot has gone forth. This, this death sentence has, has, has been spread now throughout the entire empire. And it looks as though the agents of Satan are poised to accomplish everything they were hoping for. And God's people to be totally wiped out. We remind ourselves that God is in control and that his plans are being carried out perfectly. It's just that we're still in chapter 3 and we don't see the end of the story. And in our lives, we're in chapter 3. And we don't see the end of the story yet. But that doesn't mean God is not perfectly carrying out his purposes. Here's the heart, the word of God to the Hamans of the world. To the Xerxes of the world. To the Hitlers of the world. to, To the Margaret Sangers of the world. And the abortion lobbyists of the world. To all who shake their fist in his face. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse four says this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations your your heritage. The ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a word for us today. Perhaps, Christian, you need to be reminded of God's sovereign rule. That he is seated on the throne in complete control. That there are no rivals in his kingdom. No rivals to his kingdom reign. Oh, there are many rebels. And we feel the weight of these rebels. Rebels like Haman, who who actually seem to accomplish much in the earth. We need to take heart. We need to be encouraged that Christ is reigning. And he is accomplishing all his good purposes. In the end, we will find out what looked like sure doom in chapter 3 was just one piece of the puzzle of God's perfect plan that he he is putting together in all of history. Perhaps you're the one living in rebellion, though. Then you should be sobered. By what you just heard. You should be sobered as you look at these these earthly plots and schemes and plans of wicked men. Who think so highly of themselves. Who cause so much fear in the hearts of other men and so much reverence from other men. And to think that the one who is truly seated on the throne is mocking them in laughter. Holding them in derision. Who will one day speak to them in his wrath. Revealing the true nature of his power and dominion over them. You should be sobered by what you have heard. In the words of Psalm 2, hear and be wise. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Bow your knee to this king, lest you perish. Here's the promise of scripture. If you'll come to him, he'll have you. He'll welcome you. You won't be his enemy. You'll be his friend. You'll be his son, his daughter. This is the truth for all of us. This is the truth over over everything. As we look at the trouble in the world, as we look at the the trials and the tribulations that saints of old have faced and that, that we have faced in our own lives and that we will surely face in the days to come, these words are true. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the call. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to this triune God reigning over all things. This this God, this 
holy, righteous judge who has made a way for you through the death of his son. Through his sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. This this God who has sent his very spirit to, to dwell in the hearts of believers to remind us of these very truths. Our sure deposit of the salvation that is ours right now in Christ. Come to him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at this this strange story of Esther, as we come to this chapter, which is so dark, so depraved, so so full of of wickedness and scheming and, and earthly power over the lives of an entire nation of people, We are reminded that it is you, our God, who is enthroned. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Our God who does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on earth and none can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? This is the God to whom we come. This God who not only rules over all things, but is is not far off, has made himself near to us, has made himself our father through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Lord, I pray you would cause our confidence in you to grow. And I do pray, Lord, for my friends who may be in this room that are rebels in your kingdom still at this very moment, who've not bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who because of that still stand under the just condemnation of God for their sin. I pray in your mercy, by your spirit, you would call them to yourself, even now in this moment. Lord, even in this moment of prayer, that you would grant to them the gift of saving faith, the gift of repentance, that they would be given eyes to see you, to see your son to understand the greatness of your salvation and to humble themselves before you and be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you for the riches of your promises to us. We thank you, Lord, that in a world that feels like it is spiraling out of control at times, we rest secure in the knowledge that our God reigns and that we have been made his people by faith through his Son. Pray, Lord, that you then would be glorified in us and through us, making us faithful ambassadors of this kingdom to this dark and dying world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.